You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Seven of Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action. On this podcast, we hope to sh- uh, showcase ordinary people, pivotal moments, resilience, and how such experiences lead to impact. I am your host, Dr. Saba Maruf, and I am here with my friend and co-host, Calvin Moore. hey And I also have a guest co-host today, uh, my very good friend and sister, Zainab Salman. Hello. Um. And our guest for today is um, Rebecca Karam. Hi. So here on our show, our aim is to find and share stories of unique people who are making a difference each in their own individual ways, using their talents sparked by their passion. And with this podcast, I have a renewed energy and hope to share goodness, to share stories of positivity, promote diversity and inclusivity. And I'm very excited to share these conversations and glimpses of some amazing individuals and their stories. I hope to touch upon a wide range of topics with this podcast and really dig deep into personal stories of motivated individuals making an impact. Um, so today I'm so happy to introduce our unsung hero um, of today, and that is Rebecca Karam. She's a PhD candidate in sociology at the City University of New York Graduate Center. She's a Michigan native, grew up in Birmingham, relocated to New York City. And um, right now she's kind of traveling between the East Coast and Michigan, collecting her data for her dissertation, which she's going to talk about. Um, she also serves as a principal investigator for uh, the Muslims for American Progress Project on behalf of the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. Um, and we'll talk about what this project explores as well. Um, but basically, you know, Rebecca, you know, we often talk about and extol people at the end of their education educational careers when they've earned those letters after their name. Really, uh, I find that we don't often celebrate the journey and the process. And as someone who was in school for a long time, I can say while it was a str- while it was stressful, I really miss it. So I really felt like you have a unique perspective being in the thick of it. And um, while you have, you know, the enthusiasm and excitement of learning, there's also that anxiety of constantly being evaluated and critiqued, being good enough, getting through all those requirements, getting out of your comfort zone. Um, and so this is kind of an episode that's kind of dedicated to, you know, different type of unsung hero, all of our motivated um, students and people um, that are on that path of uh, the journey of higher education. And so those are some things that I kind of wanted to talk about today. Also wanted to touch on your passion for social justice and education. And, um, you know, we first met when you interviewed me for your dissertation and I mean, my, me and my husband. Um, and then also we've kind of gotten to know each other through our book club and discussions too. Um, we oh, have she's a book club. In the book club? <laughs> okay. Cool. I think I added you, you to it, Calvin. You did finally add Okay, me. fine. Calvin, I, I, I haven't showed up to book club either. Right, well, I got some thoughts yeah. on the new Jim Crow. So, you know, I may, I may be there with some thoughts. Um, and also wanted to touch on like just challenges of a couple pursuing higher education. Um, your, and also your husband's work. Um, what he's working on and how you kind of balance, you know, being a couple and both being so busy and, you know, really involved in this work. So, um, yeah, so those are kind of the th- things that we want to talk about today. So welcome. Thank you so much for giving your time and being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's sort of um, it's special to be recognized as an unsung hero. Sorry, I'll speak <laughs> closer. Um, yeah, usually these things you're in the thick of it. Like you said, you, you're just, your nose is to the grindstone. You're barely looking up. So I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, your work, what you're doing, where you are in your path. Um, now you're a doctoral student in, you know, exactly kind of your field and what you're studying. Yeah. So this is my PhD in sociology. I am in my fifth year. And so now I have finished all of my coursework, all of my exams, and now I'm a free agent, so to speak, working on my dissertation. And right now the project focuses on 
American-born Muslim parents in the Detroit area who choose to educate their kids in a full-time Islamic school. So what motivates that decision? Um, I mean, amongst all of the choices, I'm talking to parents who are considering homeschooling, public schools, private schools, charter schools, Islamic schools, even Catholic schools. So, you know, that's a lot of decision-making. It's something that parents reevaluate year to year. So what's behind that decision and what comes next. So that's what I'm exploring, as you know, since mm-hmm. I've already spoken to you about all of your schooling decisions with your own children. Um, <clears throat> and how, yeah, How many couples or parents have you spoken to up to date? Hmm, I haven't checked, but I would estimate about 25 couples so far. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping to speak to maybe about 10 more. I've also spoken to school administrators, school founders, after school activity leaders. And then, as you know, I just kind of show up at different places and (laughs) talk to people. We've seen each other at various uh, events around the community. So when you were deciding to pursue this path, I'm guessing that you didn't know that it was going to lead you to this very specific topic. What kind of um, what what kind of helped lead you on this path? How did you decide to pursue a doctorate in sociology and, um, you know, kind of what were your what what was about it your uh, in your upbringing that led you to this path? And what were your you know, what were you thinking in the beginning of what this journey would be like? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, when I started, I did my undergraduate degree at University of Michigan Dearborn, and I actually went there to pursue a degree in international relations. And I went there specifically to study Arabic. Um, and, you know, have that be included in my international relations degree. But when I got there, um, I found out that ironically, Dearborn is a terrible place to learn Arabic <laughs> because <laughs> so all of my classmates um, or many of them, I should say, were native Arabic speakers. Mm -hmm. And they were coming to the class to maybe learn how to read and write or maybe learn more formal Arabic. And they would ask questions in Arabic to the Arabic instructor. (laughs) And the Arabic instructor would then respond in Arabic and leaving, you know, the handful of us that had no... You're like, this is not helpful. No. (laughs) So then I... I don't know what you're saying. Foreign language, anyone. (laughs) (laughs) So I decided that if I'm going to really do this, I need to go have a full immersive experience. So that's when I decided to go study in Lebanon. So in the summer of 2010, I enrolled in the Lebanese American Universities. Uh, summer Arabic program, intensive program. Um, And that experience was eye-opening for so many reasons. You know, not only did I learn Arabic, both like street Arabic and the formal fusha, but I also, um, you know, I reconnected with family there. So um, I have like third and fourth cousins that still live in Lebanon. So I was able to go, you know, go back. And that was a deeply profound and moving experience for me because I got to meet these people, like I said, all the way around the world who not only shared my last name, but kind of had my same eyes and smile. And it was really, it was really beautiful and humbling. Um, And one of the things that I learned in Lebanon was how much life chances and um, social life is organized by religious identity. That was one of the things I noticed right away. My family, um, they're Maronite Catholics in Lebanon. And so I sort of, you know, I would visit them on the weekends, have dinner with them, look at the way that they live their life. But then on other moments, like on other weekends, I would visit refugee camps in Lebanon and spend time with the children there. And I would think about how life chances are shaped by social class and the way that that intersects with religion. Anyway, I I came back really changed by that experience. And when I went to continue on with my degree, I discovered that, in fact, Arabic wasn't allowed for my international relations degree. They wanted me to study French or Spanish or something. So I said, okay, I'll move on from this. And sociology is 2011-ish. So it was like 2011. I so if that's changed now. I'm, I hope so. <laughs> Probably Chinese at this point. <laughs> yes. to be honest. So that's when I found out that sociology accepted my credits from the Lebanese American University toward my foreign language and, um, and the awesome people in the sociology department 
really warmly accepted me and promoted, you know, my research. And from there, I started to explore those topics about religion and social class and cultural identity more closely. And that was actually what my um, my capstone project was on was people Arabs here in the Detroit area and cultural differences based on their religion between Arab Christians mm. and Arab Muslims and thinking about that differently. Interesting. So how's the journey been for, for you and your husband? I mean, I'm married. I think I, is everybody in this, at this table right now married? Okay, so we're all married. Okay. Uh, and so we know what it's like to, to kind of have jobs and, and families and life and everything kind of getting in the way. Uh, I'm currently working on my second master's degree going into a PhD program at Wayne State University, hopefully in the fall here. Awesome. Um, so, but my wife is not currently pursuing a PhD. Uh, so what's that like? What's that journey been like for you pursuing a PhD? Your husband also, he's currently pursuing as well. Okay. So what's his in and what's that been like for you both to be pursuing a PhD at the same time? Yeah, we get that question all the time. Uh, people want to know what on earth are you guys thinking? <laughs> are you crazy? Uh, one of you needs to be out there making money, things like this. So, uh, you know, I, there's a, there's a, there's a term used in the academic field called the two-body problem, so that once you both get your PhD, you go on the job market. How on earth are two PhDs going to find a job, let alone one person? <laughs> but, you know, I really like to kind of flip the script on these things and really see it as a two-body advantage because, um, really, it's an invaluable support that I have right there at home. Pursuing a PhD is draining emotionally, mentally, even physically, especially in New York City, like just tiring and horrible. But I have this partner that really gets it, mm -hmm. uh, understands the late night and late hours because he's up there with me doing his own work too. And I've actually heard from colleagues and friends who one partner is pursuing a PhD and the other one works a more typical nine to five type job turn off that laptop, like, let's go to bed, let's relax. But when you're an academic, you keep crazy hours and you're up all mm -hmm. night reading and writing. Yep. And yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. and so it's actually it's, it's been wonderful. And hey, having um, an editor in house, in house is never a bad thing. <laughs> Don't have to outsource that. And what's uh, what's his PhD in? Also sociology. Also, okay, all right. So yeah, and he's did at, you meet in the sociology world or like we met in Detroit? I don't know your story now. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, we we actually cultivated a love for sociology together, um, and it's been something that's actually made our marriage a lot stronger, our relationship stronger. It's a really it's a space where we can both really connect, um, make sense of the world. I think when we when we met, we've been together over 10 years now. We were, you know, very different people, but both very frustrated with the world and society for different reasons. And I think learning sociology together has been a sort of therapeutic for us. And it's something that mm -hmm. we really bond over. Yeah, back, back until November, back until November 8th, right? Now we're all frustrated. We're all frustrated yeah, so again. So now y'all are with me. <laughs> <laughs> we're all frustrated again. Yeah. Um, What's his, because I, We've talked about it before. What is his work in? His um, he's doing his dissertation on what topic? Yeah, so his his areas are economic sociology and um, urban poverty. So his research is actually on the way that um, people without bank accounts or credit accounts rely on party stores to help make ends meet. He They're and I would have very very good discussions because mm -hmm. it's an area of focus for me, but. Really? Yes. In the party store? Uh, no, just uh, race relations in America in general. Mm -hmm. That's my my pedigree. So yeah. the whole party store, I'm doing an episode of my show in a few weeks on food justice, talking about, you know, farm to table and how is that an area supported primarily by white privilege because, right. you know, you go down to the party store and it's like food-like substances and grape drink instead of grape juice. Right. You know, D Dave Chappelle always made the joke. He's like, hey, you know, I grew up and I didn't know what juice was. Like, what is juice? Like. Give me that grape drink, sugar, uh -huh. water, and purple. That, those are the ingredients, <laughs> are the ingredients. In, in the juice at the mm -hmm. corner, at the corner store. But continue. I'm sorry. No, and so that's that's exactly right. And so, um, you know, people are in vulnerable positions. They rely on the party store owners, but also party store owners really rely on their clientele. And so, it's a a precarious position that everyone's in together. And so, he's exploring that relationship more closely. The great thing about sociologists is that um, we like to really explore the complex relationships on both sides, looking at both customer experiences and the way that party store owners, you know, their lives as well. And so, mm. um, you know, it's a fraught relationship, but it, it makes, it helps make people 
people can make their ends meet that way because mm -hmm. they're not getting their needs met elsewhere, Correct. especially in a place like Detroit where mm -hmm. grocery stores are few and far few between. And far between. You know, I lived in the city, um, yeah, like 10 years ago when we met in 2006. And I remember living in Midtown and trying to shop at it was a food pride and university foods and the grocery stores were atrocious. The food was rotten, old, disgusting. I remember picking through packages of chicken, like looking for ones with the proper date. It's a terrible way to shop. But we were lucky compared to other neighborhoods because I could walk to the grocery store and you can't do now that. You can, now you can walk to Whole Foods. Okay. But now yeah. we have Whole Foods. Whole Foods yeah. That's an interesting yeah. shopping yeah. experience. Yeah. yeah, I got some stories about that. Anyway. <laughs> but I think it's interesting um, talking about just being in uh, being a couple that's kind of pursuing mm -hmm. higher education. Um, for me, my husband and I are both in medicine. I kind of feel kind of we talk about this. I kind of feel bad for him. He was actually in uh, residency as I was just starting medical school. So he went through the whole thing himself. He was finishing on his own. He was finishing up his residency and then here I come and I'm like just starting. But I mean, but the support was just and exactly. And when I, when there's people that are interested, especially women that are interested in the field of medicine, it's like you just, that's kind of one of the things that I talk about is, you know, um, if you're married, like how supportive is your spouse? Cause it's easy to say like, oh yeah, honey, I'm behind you all the way. But exactly like those long nights and your time is like never really your time. And of course that's going to impact you and impact your relationship. I really appreciate, I mean, that. So um, tell us a little bit about your involvement with the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding and how you got involved um, with this project. Sure. So they, you know, they, they wanted to do a project on Muslim contributions to the state of Michigan, basically in order to give the basis to media makers and just everyday citizens alike a, um, a contrary view to what you see in the media commonly about the way that Muslims are portrayed. And so we went out and did a full study. Um, yeah, exactly how Muslims really benefit the state of Michigan. And so uh, they were looking for researchers. And I was here in, um, you know, in Michigan for my dissertation. And so they hired me on for this project to lead the project and help formulate a design research design and get out there and, and do it. If I'm not mistaken, I could be mistaken. But if I'm not mistaken, the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, wasn't it started by Saeed Khan? He was one. So I kind of didn't introduce it, but it is a think tank. And he is one of the yeah. founding members. And it's actually also um, my brother-in-law, um, Iltafat Hamzavi. Okay. Um, so they are really good friends. And there's a few of the them that got together. I was the founder last Lit night. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of cool. <laughs> and like, literally they that. were like in... It was very close to after 9-11 and they yep. were in someone's basement and they were like, where do these facts come? And first of all, so I'm family and we've been to every fundraising dinner and it took me a few years to figure out what the heck a think tank was. It took us all the whole family like, <laughs> what is a think tank? Once we figured it out, we were totally on board. But, um, you know, just that why are we letting other people run the narrative and give us these, let me talk about false news, but um, facts like at that time there was like this weird fact that was roaming around or in the air that something about like uh, mosques. I remember this in the 2000s, like there was like some crazy percentage of mosques or like Wahhabi. And once it's, I mean, and this was before Facebook, but once that, you know, that fact is out there, it's like who refutes it. And so they were like, you know what, we're going to do our own research and um, give out our own facts. And their whole premise, right, is to provide policy briefs yeah. um, for other institutes and even specifically on a political governmental level also. I was at uh, Bank Sui last night where Saeed spoke. He was actually on my podcast. That looks really good. Yeah. I just he, was on, he was on my podcast on Wednesday. Actually, the last week he's been traveling. He met the Pope last week. Wow. Uh, he gave me some blessed, uh, <laughs> blessed, uh, a blessed rosary from the Pope, which is kind of cool. Wow. Um, but then he flew in, uh, he flew to Canada, did some stuff with the CBC, uh, came back down to Detroit, did a couple panels. Then he spoke on my, my panel. Then last night he was at Bank Suey and we actually got to sit down and he talked about the inception of, mm -hmm. of this organization that you work for. I'm like, I, I think that's the same, same one. So I'm one. glad that it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Actually, it's funny because I was with his wife yesterday and she, I'm like, Oh, it doesn't say you have this thing. She's like, I don't even know. But we were actually at a <laughs> SOSS thing, Sisterhood of Salam Shalom. It was a gathering of Jewish and uh, Muslim women. So his wife was 
they are doing something else different. Anyway, you're, so yeah, you're you, running this project. What, uh, talk about the the map project. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're involved in this. What's that? So th- this is the Muslims for American Progress project, and this is this project that I said, you know, looking to capture, analyze, and count Muslim contributions to the state of Michigan. So. Basically, I developed a whole research approach that was mixed methods, both quantitative and qualitative, where on one hand, we would estimate the number of Muslims in a given profession, but then also do this on the ground qualitative work where we interviewed over 150 individuals to try and get a sense of Muslim contributions to these different fields. So, for example, in medicine, we learned that even though Muslims only make up 2.75% of the state's population, they make up over 15% of the state's MDs. Um, so is that because uh, – well, we had a, our, our last guest um, was talking about how he was a lawyer and – Everybody kind of looked down on that from him because he right. wasn't a, I was like, what, what, what did you need to be? And he's like, a doctor. <laughs> but now it's come in very handy with the Muslim ban, right? You know, being exactly. a lawyer is a very, very good thing. But I guess that's like the height in, in some Muslim cultures is to be a doctor is like that. Um, kind of I think big... it was like our, a lot of our, I mean, cultural thing. And honestly, I think that was more, I, I don't see it as much as now. I don't know, Zainab, what do you think? No, I but don't I'm kind think of out of that age range too, where I'm yeah, feeling I'm out of pressure. that age range as well. <laughs> but I think a lot of it had to do with, um, uh, there was um, a large influx of Muslim immig- immigrants that came after 65 yeah. to the country. Um, a lot of them were in the medical profession. Okay. Um, and it, and I guess in their home countries, countries mm-hmm. it's seen as kind of this prestigious profession where it will take you out of a lot of out of you know some of your socioeconomic um, standings that you're mm-hmm. in, and so that kind of cultural baggage and perception came over to the states here and i think a lot of countries too it's like you have to decide at a very young age like they don't really have like liberal arts co- like right. at that time i don't know if i mean i'm pretty sure it's the same you have to decide by the age of like eight 17 or 18 right. what you're going to do for your, the rest of your life and there was a time when there was like basically a few viable options like i mean law engineering teaching or right. medicine right so okay. i mean in the arab world as well like you would take a test in in high school and if you scored on the higher end, then you would be placed into medical school. And if you're scored on the lower end, you would be placed into religious sciences, which is interesting. Okay, so. I'll say being in medicine and going into psychiatry. Actually, I've had people that are like, why are you going into psychiatry? Even even within the field of medicine, there's almost like a, you know, like a, it's, in, it's interesting to see what is valued. Right. By, yeah. By different absolutely. Cultures, but so. I think it's changing. There's That's been right. a lot it's of right. talk perception in the is changing. Absolutely. Well, and, yeah. If I can just jump yeah. in, yeah, for one your interview. Just <laughs> to say that you know, I think this is one major misperception that this project really counters is the idea that there's one Muslim experience mm-hmm. or that there's one Muslim exactly. American. And in fact, ISPU just conducted another poll where they um, sampled a random cross section of Muslims across the country. And they found that Muslim Americans actually make up the country's most diverse faith group. So about a quarter of Muslims are African American or black, about a quarter are white, 20% are Asian, um, meaning like South Asian or Pakistani, um, another 18% are Arab. Arab and then everything else, you know, Native American mixed. Um, And so and so, again, another misperception is that all Muslims are extraordinary, extraordinarily wealthy. And so we do we do Mm -hmm. see a lot of very wealthy Muslims in the state and in this country. But we also see a full range of diversity in terms of class. And so our project really does reflect that truly the diversity in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, class immigrant status, everything. Um, and I, I think it's really important for people to learn that because, again, if you look to media stereotypes, you just see that one shady brown figure who maybe, you know, is always in reference to terrorism or some sort of extremist violence. And so I mm-hmm. think that this is something that really does need challenging at a fundamental level. Mm-hmm. And- I've asked to speak sometimes on like, you know, treating the Muslim patient or um And I'm always, you know, I used to do these talks and I'm kind of hesitant because I'm like, who am I to speak for everybody? This is my experience. And I I feel very hesitant generalizing to everyone or even like the community that I grew up in or the very small niche. So I think that definitely speaks to that. And so that's awesome that we have the data now. So the question that comes out of it for me then is you do the work, you realize, hey, it's not a monolithic group. These people are coming from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different class backgrounds. Um different professions, all these different contributions. 
and play, different places that people are coming from and different contributions that they're giving to not just their community, but to the country, even though you're focusing on, you know, the contributions to Michigan. Um, how do you then disseminate that information? Cause it's very easy for me to watch 24. Hey, there's another Muslim terrorist. And that's my now view of what Muslims must be like. Not mine personally, but you know, a lot of people are lazy. Hey, that's what it is. That's what they must be. There's a Muslim ban for a reason. It's because Jack Bauer is now president on some other show. So he's not taking out these Muslim terrorists anymore. So Trump is right. That's what they're all like. And that's, that's what it is. How do you, once you've got the information, Hey, we know what this really is over here, what it's really like. How do you disseminate the information? Cause there's so much misinformation or stereotyping out there. How do you get the information out once you have it? That's such a great question. And in fact, ISPU has taken a new approach with this project in particular. And one of the things that we've been doing since the very beginning, even when we were formulating the research approach, was getting connected with experts in social media so that we can repackage and sort of form collect data that fits nicely into infographics, shareable, clickable bites. And so actually we created a video from um, some of our preliminary findings. It was released in November and it's gotten over like 150,000 views, for example. And so this is really one way that we're trying is we're trying to make it so this is accessible to people on their news feeds just for one so that maybe people will be exposed that way. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe ask some questions to go find out more. Um, but also, like Saba was saying, the Something that ISPU does well is doing public policy briefs. And so we're also trying to get this information into the hands of policymakers so that they might inform public policy that is more fair, more just. But then, um, you know, what one thing that I talk about is how these things operate in a feedback loop. So you start at the individual citizen who maybe is misinformed or doesn't have as much information as they could. So maybe you want to help get information to them as individuals. But those are voting constituents who then vote in public public policymakers who are trying to represent those uninformed constituents. And so then they're making uninformed policy. And then the media sort of absorbs that uninformed policy and shares it back to the uninformed constituency. So we go around and around. And so how how do you intervene? That's like a fundamental question and something that definitely a lot of sociologists are concerned about right now is how do we be public sociologists? And so I think that that's something that this project is well equipped to do. Um, A tagline for the project is hard facts with a human face so that you're not just bombarded by numbers and figures and where did that come from? And when you see that methodology, you know, I mean, I'm happy to answer in-depth questions about methodology, but we also paired it with Artistic narratives um, Mm -hmm. and these beautiful portraits. We got a local photographer here from Detroit who took amazing, stunning portraits. Actually, there's one of Mm -hmm. Zena. There is. (laughs) Were you looking good that day? It was a little too close for comfort. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll be honest. This picture is awesome. Zena Mm -hmm. looks so good. She's got this awesome leather jacket on (laughs) and she looks tough. But then, you know, you can see in her eyes that she's got this great Mm -hmm. depth and complexity and it makes you want to say, hey, well, let me learn more about that person. And so we actually interviewed Zainab about her teacher as an, or her, her experience as an educator and her passion for that. And um, I have to say, when that picture came out on Facebook, um, I actually had some former students, parents that messaged me because it went into or got into their newsfeed somehow. And these are like long gone students. I don't have them anymore. You know, like my only interaction with these parents was maybe parent teacher conference. I don't talk about my religion in my classroom or anything like that, or even in any other capacity when I'm with them. Um, and, and they messaged me and they're like, wow, like this is a really cool project that you're in. And we're looking through the rest of these images and we never knew that, you know, your community was so diverse and that you come from multiple backgrounds. It was really fascinating. <clears throat> Wow. Well, yeah. I have to say it's great to hear from you and hear from you. You, know, you put these things out there yeah. and you don't know. You mm-hmm. hope, yeah. right, yeah. that it's getting having an influence. Yeah. But that's it's a beautiful yeah. display at the last ISPU dinner. I mean, they've had it's like these huge posters and it's just like these different faces. And it's it's a really beautiful display. And then just the exposés and um, narratives that are beside right, the them. So we'll definitely put a link up with that when we um when we have our description of our of this episode, because it's really a must see. And actually, uh, you talked about Bank Suey. We've been in, in contact with the folks at Bank Suey. So hopefully they'll be on display in Hamtramck later this mm-hmm. summer for everyone to see as well. Very cool. Apparently Hamtramck was one. I just learned this last night. Hamtramck was one of the first Muslim majority cities in the United States. Indeed. Oh, wow. Hamtramck is a really interesting place. It's like the 
I mean, just different um, different groups of immigrants. It's kind of their first stop in Michigan. A lot of Bangladeshis. Mm-hmm. Now, Bangla- but, but, you know, think, you know, but initially yeah, it was like Polish and then mm-hmm. uh, many of the Bosnians mm-hmm. that came after as refugees mm-hmm. in the 90s. Um, and now, yeah, Yemenis and Bangladeshis, I think. And that, mm-hmm. that's really what's fascinating, I think, about this area, all these different pockets. So this is a must be just such a mecca for sociology research. <laughs> so really, Hamtramck is like a sociologist dream. And in fact, um, you can I, thank Henry Ford for that. Yeah. Another, <laughs> <laughs> actually, there was a major sociological study written about the Polish people in Hamtramck mm-hmm. in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So sociologists have been interested in this area for a long time. You know, Hamtramck is so unique because it's its own municipality within the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes for a perfect stepping stone if you're from mm-hmm. the inner city. And th- the city itself, you know, it has a lot of larger structural institutional problems. And the city is so physically, geographically large. And so Mm -hmm. actually, I don't know if you've ever seen this picture, but there are these pictures that get shared. You can fit New York, San Francisco, and Boston all within the geographical limits of the city of Detroit. Yeah, Detroit's 139 square miles, 142 if you include water. Yeah. So and so, you know, it, it makes it really, really difficult to address problems in any sort of systematic way in the city because it's just so big. big. Uh, and, and then so, the freeways. I was just listening to a show yesterday. I did not know this. Just the historical standpoint of putting all these freeways, mm-hmm. the Jeffreys, um, in between communities, and literally communities, splitting right up neighborhoods, over communities, cutting or, it up, or just paving, obliterating them. Paving exactly, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Black yeah. bottom is. I mean, as a black yes. person, I'm going. I. Uh, my job, uh, I mean, obviously, I love doing this. It's a great hobby. It's fun. Uh, mm-hmm. But the moneymaker for me is I own a tour company of Detroit. So I give people tours of the city. So I know pretty much everything there is to know about the history of the city, which is why I love sociologists because I always take them out to areas like Northwest because that's where you guys are really interested in the city because um, of everything becoming fallow and everybody moving out after 1950s and all that kind of stuff. But um, I have no idea where I was going with this. Where was I going with this? I have no idea. I lost my What point. were we talking about? It's gone. I don't know. It's gone. It's um, all right. You're talking about your day job. Uh, Tour, yeah. touring. Yeah, I, know. I know. I don't know where I was going with it. Let's just, let's just move on. It happens sometimes. I get so excited when people mention well, Detroit and then I see I do too. I uh, Northwest okay. Detroit. Well, Northwest Detroit is where sociologists mm-hmm. want to see. Because and after, there is even, I think, one from Princeton, who's a colleague of my husband's, who I think is studying there as well. Yes, there there's a mm-hmm. lot of sociologists up and in Detroit. <laughs> and I think for both of us, um, Having lived here and knowing a lot about it, we're kind of like, hmm, okay. And especially because we talked to them, they've been embedded in maybe the city for a little while. And we'll ask basic questions like, oh, what about the party store? What's a party store? And we're like, okay, you haven't, we haven't been here enough. <laughs> yeah, you haven't you been got, here. You got to keep going. Keep going. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's a classic sociology, like sociology conundrum is the insider outsider mm-hmm. um, sort of vantage point. You know, I'm not a Muslim, but I, I do a lot of research on Muslims. And on one hand, it is a great advantage for me because I can ask questions that maybe are taken for granted by Muslim scholars themselves. But on the other hand, I might sometimes ask really dumb questions that annoy the people that I'm interviewing. But I try, you know, it's it's an interesting sort of balance. Hmm. You were talking about your family in Lebanon. Um, mm-hmm. Your father is so Lebanese, mm-hmm. full Lebanese. Yeah, but he was, you know, he was born here and his folks were born here. So I'm like, whatever, third or fourth generation at this point. Um, and his family is from the mountains in northern Lebanon, and his mother's family was from the south. Um, and yeah, it, it's interesting because my father was not raised speaking Arabic. They purposefully didn't want his, their kids to learn it. They wanted them to be fully American, um, you know, and tr- you know, in some ways, trying to distance from that. And so it was something was lost. And so for me, it was mm. sort of recapturing mm. that old part of our family history, learning Arabic, and like I said, to reconnect with those people across That's the world amazing. was just amazing. amazing. And to see my father, he came with me for a week, and he, he came up and met the family, and he he was able to meet for the very first time his um it would have been his grandfather's cousin and to see them and they just set eyes on each other and hugged and tears. And it was a really beautiful, beautiful Powerful. moment. I'll remember wow. for the rest of my life. How was <clears throat> their response? I mean, how did your father feel about you studying Arabic and going to Lebanon and initially? And 
Yeah, definitely some confusion. Like, what are you doing and why? And, you know, still to this day, you know, he I think he still wonders why it is that I'm studying Muslims now. And I think for a lot of people, it's confusing because, you know, you're not a Muslim, but you're you're studying that. And so a fundamental principle within my field of, you know, studying religion is that you you don't you don't have to be of that faith or convert in order to learn about it. And I think that that can be a little confusing or strange to some people. And so sometimes I still get that question. Well, wait, did you convert? No, no, I'm just hanging out. So uh, <laughs> and it's something that comes up. And I think for my father, he's happy um, that I've been able to reconnect. And now we're friends on Facebook with these cousins and it's really wonderful. Um, but on the other hand, I think he's like, huh, what is this? What's this all about? So, Part of part of what you do is part of your PhD curriculum is you, you teach, right? Your mm-hmm. teacher. Um, how's that? A, how's that been for you? Because it's one thing to do research. Because people think you're cloistered in your academic halls, and you're in the library, and you're well. I was going to say microfiche. My mom used to do microfiche, but <laughs> you know, that. you don't got to use that anymore. <laughs> um, but you know, you're you're doing your research. Your nose is in the book. You're writing these papers. Um, that will maybe one day your dissertation will be on some dusty shelf in a library. But teaching is kind of where you're, the rubber meets the road. You're meeting people who have questions, uh, and, and are hung, hopefully hungry to learn. Uh, how have current events such as the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. and, uh, Trump's, uh, run for president and election as the president of the United States and then executive orders as the president of the United States and attacking other countries as the president of the United States, things like that. Uh, how has Black Lives Matter movement Trump's run for president and win for president. Uh, how's that affected your teaching and classroom environment? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I am definitely an ardent supporter of Black Lives Matter, the Women's March. I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> out there and in the streets. But I try my hardest to separate that from my teaching because, you know, this is a, you know, an old adage. Maybe <coughs> Zainab also abides by this one as well, that I want to teach my, I don't want to teach my students what to think, but rather how, how to, to think. Mm-hmm. And this is a very challenging question where I teach. Um, I've been teaching at the Brute College in New York City, which is the CUNY Systems Business College. And this is a really strange place to teach sociology because these are mostly business majors who come from an economics background and they're all about, you know, their fundamental principle is economic rationality. So basically poor people need to pull them up by their bootstraps Mm. or they're not working hard enough or like, you know, get with it. And so, you know, it, it takes a minute to sort of start speaking their language and start like thinking about their perspective and then trying to gently push back and, you know, sort of, um, be able to explain that, yes, individual agency is very important. And to some extent, all Americans have agency to change their outcomes. But there are some groups that experience um, social structures and social barriers differently. And so this is where we really introduce this idea of the sociological imagination, where you combine biography and history, and you try to understand not only your, like, your own life in the context of larger social forces, but then you can use that to understand the positions of others. And this can be really difficult and some students are resistant. And, you know, I have, <coughs> I actually haven't taught this year, but the last semester I taught, um, I had some students maybe trying to call my facts and data fake news. And mm-hmm. so, okay. So when I start to get that kind of resistance, I have to take a breath and say, okay, you don't agree with it. And this is like a fundamental part of the academic discourse. You don't agree. That's fine. Now, I want you to go and search for your own empirical facts and form your own hypotheses. And, you know, if you're going to have an argument, make it a sound argument and see where they get. Hmm. So that's, you know, that's me as an educator. I don't know, Zainab, what type of things have you encountered in your classroom? No, I would say very similar. It's really important that we teach them the tools, right, of how to think. Mm -hmm. And um, if I could spoon feed them my thoughts and my perspectives... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't lead to a robust and colorful and, um, you know, thoughtful classroom. And so I really appreciate that you said that. I do see when um, I'm outside of the academic world. Well, I'm in it technically in terms of uh, getting a degree. Uh, but when it comes to the type of pedigree that I have, my pedigree is in history. So my my background is 
the African-American experience in the early American Republic. So anything from the inception of the nation up to and including the Civil War is my area of expertise. Like literally, I'm an expert in the in the topic. And although I've been told not to call yourself an expert in anything, um, but um, it's it's really interesting as a historian, the the frustration, I think for I'm sensing what you're saying here. Hey, you know what? We teach this. These are things that are going on. But I try not to let that influence too much. It's my job to teach you how to think. Um, so you can't bring your own personal thoughts to, uh, or as much as you can, you peel back your personal thoughts and teach the, the pure thing as it is. Same thing with history where my area tends to focus on slavery a lot. And I will talk about the people not as horrible human beings. And that's really hard for people because history has spoken. We've looked back on it and we now know that history was a horrible, horrible thing. But when I'm trying to study and explain to people, people within their own context, like everybody thought this way, this is the mm-hmm. way that the culture survived. And so people get very incensed, incensed with me when I won't say, I mean, obviously, personally, if you ask me, is, was, Slavery, a great moral evil. Yes. And there were people at the time who were saying the same thing. As for the wider culture, not everybody thought that way. Right. And so I tried to take my own personal thoughts on slavery out of the historical study of the the institution itself. So I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying. There, so. Yeah. And it's something that I think is hard for most people to think about is that social justice and social change is hard. And mm-hmm. it's unpopular at the time that it happened. So it's really easy for all of us now Mm -hmm. in 2017 to look at, for example, um, you know, looking at the 1960s and like the, the, the Civil Rights Act that was passed and you'd pat yourself on the back and say, yeah, I'd be a supporter of that. But if you look back at the time, most people were not. And yeah. in fact, they fought mm-hmm. to keep Jim Crow laws in place. People think the 13th Amendment just sailed through. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, it, right. didn't. it didn't. It didn't. It was skin exactly. of its teeth. Right. And so I think that this is something that's very important for people to think about is that you can't look back on history and think that you would have always made the right Mm -hmm. choice it's hard it's you know you get called names and people hate you for the for the things that you're trying to Mm -hmm. promote and so i think it's something to think about today with the racial injustices that we see and people are trying to fight them in the way that black lives matter gets Mm -hmm. demonized and there are a lot of parallels it's not the same but there are a lot of parallels absolutely wow so interesting um how you know we kind of talked about this, but it just even when you started teaching, how was that experience? You know, they kind of every program is different. But when you were first put in the classroom, I think you were saying that when we were talking, you were like twenty. I was 20, 22 or twenty three. Wow, it was terrifying. So and that's college students. Yeah, yeah, and it was really public. Public speaking is still something I'm getting used to. It's not my forte. I put myself out there as much as I can, but definitely my very first time in the classroom um, was really terrifying for me. And I think I just wanted to like slink back in the corner and pretend like nobody could see me. I mean, it really is a calling and a true gift. And I wish I had 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 more time to prepare for it. One unique thing about the CUNY system is that, yeah, you begin teaching in your second year of the PhD. It's part of what makes our tuition so low is that they have grad students teaching the classes. Okay. So, um, you know, just something to think about. Um, And I had very little pedagogical training. I didn't know really what I was doing in terms of syllabus development and classroom development and how to maintain a classroom that's something that I've had to sort of learn on the fly. And I've definitely had some classroom moments that maybe were regrettable where I had (coughs) students going crazy and uh, you have to learn. And then in terms of confidence, building that confidence, being out of your comfort zone. And I always talk about this, but this whole, and and now you've progressed, but I think dealing with this whole like imposter syndrome, like feeling like even with all your learning and your experience and all the wisdom that you're gaining, feeling like, oh my gosh, someone's going to find out that I, that I'm not all that, <laughs> that I'm someone's going to find me out. <laughs> <laughs> and it just doesn't yeah. stop. You know, yeah. you were saying how you and your husband, you know, he was just finishing his program and you began. So I'm in my fifth year. I'm beginning to wrap things up, but now my husband Vance has just started. It's his first year. And so I'm sort of watching as he goes through this first year of the doctoral program and thinking back. And I remember just feeling terrible all the time because you enter the program thinking, I'm so smart. They accepted me. Mm. I'm awesome. And then you get there and you're just getting basically beat down every day. Mm. You know, there's so much to learn. It's a really humbling experience. Yeah, but when you're done and you have an argument, you should be like, honey, I'm a doctor. (laughs) 
I think I know. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling she's not going to say that. <laughs> so what advice, um, Rebecca, would you give to individuals that are considering pursuing a doctorate or, you know, just in general, like the world of academia or just lifelong learners? I mean, that's kind of different, but. You know, you really have to have a passion for it because those long nights and those moments where you feel like a total imposter and you feel terrible about yourself, you you have to have that that feeling of redemption that it's all worth it. So it's really long and arduous. And so you need that that emotional connection to your research or whatever it is that you're studying, whether it's history or religion or whatever it is, you need to have that so you can get through it. So that's step one is that you have to be really passionate about it. But then also, yeah, you need to think about just the toll it's going to take. Um, You know, it takes a long time. I now see my friends from high school and they're buying houses and, you know, they have nice cars and a career and I'm still living the grad student life, schlepping around on spirit <coughs> flights back and forth, <laughs> terrorized. As long as it's not united. Uh, <laughs> Timestamp that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this is all stuff to think about. But um, I think for me, my own parents, my father didn't go to college, but he has always been a lifelong learner, always been looking to learn more. And so I think that's something all of us can take away. And just whatever it is that you're doing, never stop learning. We should all be lifelong learners. Yeah, definitely. I think I see so many parallels. I mean, being in medicine, I feel the same way. I feel like my 20s, like life started again when I was done, which was basically like my early 30s. But you know, what's interesting is that you kind of go through this period where a lot of your peers are you know, like what you said, working their real jobs. And then so many people actually end up going back to school right. being like, you know what? I don't really know if this is my life calling what I want to do. And so there might, I don't know if that's happened to you yet, but you well, might. maybe, so let's flip the question. What advice do you have for me now that you and your spouse have gone through all of that, you know, looking back, what can you tell oh, me gosh. and other folks like for me? That. <laughs> You're um, speaking to a sociologist. I know. I'm like, well, let's live for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know what? I think that uh, this is advice that I've been given to, and I'm sure that you've, you've kind of realized this, but I think it's, again, appreciating the journey that there's, um, I know that this is something that, so, I mean, many in my family have kind of gone this route. My brother and sister-in-law, she's also a psychiatrist and he was, um, he has his PhD and then later went to law school. So same thing before they had, and that's, you know, newlyweds before you have kids, you think that's the time that you're going to enjoy and you know, spend time with each other. And they were always waiting for the next thing. Like, okay, done with this exam. Once I get this degree, once I get, um, and it's like, you're always waiting for the next thing and you kind of can't live like that. Like this is, and that's what my brother-in-law said to her, my, to his wife was that we can't keep waiting for the next thing. We can't be expecting the next level of happiness. This is our life and we enjoy and savor every step. And so now kind of being on the other end, it's now, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I appreciate those moments and I appreciate just like being in that culture of learning. And I, like I said, I really miss it. So I don't know, Zaina, what do you think? No, I mean, you've motivated me. <laughs> That's for sure. Wow. Yeah. I mean, learning is such a, it's such a lost art, I feel as well these days, you know, we feel like we're at the pinnacle and mm-hmm. there's nothing else that you can do and there's nothing else, that, there's nowhere else that you can go, but it's absolutely a journey. I mean, as a teacher, I've been teaching for close to 10 years now. You learn something new every year. You learn something new with every book you, you open. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a psychiatrist that passed away a few years ago and he was well revered um, in the, at Wayne State in the university community because he was very involved with teaching and part of the residency program and the fellowship for child and adolescent psychiatry. And he passed away um, pretty, like, wasn't expecting it. I mean, he was in his 80s, but he was not sick. And one something that really, I mean, this is like four years ago, something that really touched me and I remember is that his family and colleagues mentioned that, again, he was a lifelong learner and he died in his sleep and beside him on, on his nightstand was like a pile of books. And, you know, till his last day, he was always um, obtaining knowledge and in that pursuit. And that was something that I always that, that stayed with me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to want to live a life like that. Yeah, there's so. a I mean, there's actually a religious tradition that we have that the Prophet Muhammad says, um, seek knowledge from cradle to grave. Mm-hmm. And so it's a journey till the end. Mm-hmm. Always learning something new. That's beautiful. Is, uh, For sure. I don't know what your background is. I, so my, my background is growing up Christian. And I guess. If we're going to go to a holy book there, we could, uh, there's the other, the idea that keeps me humble is, 
uh, knowledge puffs up. There's, there's this verse mm-hmm. that says mm-hmm. knowledge puffs up. And that's not to say that the pursuit of knowledge is a bad thing. It's absolutely a fantastic thing. And you're absolutely, um, supposed to go after knowledge, but realizing that your knowledge is being uh, gained so that you might serve others. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is important to learn. Uh, there's a reason why you're learning what you're learning. There's a reason why your husband's learning what he's learning. There's a reason why I'm learning what I'm learning. There's a reason why we're all continuing to learn, even when we're done with our education, our formal education. So that is hopefully uh, to uh, to serve others. And then there are plenty of people out there who are just arrogant. You know, I I am. You know, honey, I'm a doctor. And I, don't say that to your husband, obviously. <laughs> right? But hey, I'm a doctor. I should know. I'm, I'm an expert <laughs> in this topic. But hey, you know what? I learned this so that I could educate others, so that I could put it out there. And I know that that can be frustrating when, you know, a student pushes back and says it's fake news and like, I'm, I'm doing this to serve you and, right. and you're, you're coming at me with your opinion. You know, go research on your own, get some facts and then present your case. Um, but always keeping that in front of us, you know, once our edu- within our education that keeps us going and then after our education is done, it keeps us humble, um, yes. is, you know, hey, knowing that you're doing this to to serve others first. So. I think as you're obtaining knowledge too, realizing how much you don't know and how much left, oh, how yeah. much there oh, is yeah. left. Oh, yeah. There's, like a, there's like a little picture of that. It's like, here's the yeah. things that you know yeah. when you when you get your, your, bachelor, your bachelor's degree. Here's what you know when you get your master's degree. Here's what you know when you get your PhD degree. And it's like a little bit more. And then it points out this big, it's like a bump on, yeah. on like this big circle. It's like, this is really all, you know, in terms yeah. of all yeah. the knowledge. You are here there. and everything yeah. else is yeah. there. So yeah. that, that keeps you humble too. Like, you know, a little tiny bit, your little section, you might be an expert in that area, but there's, the world is vast. The world is vast. Yes. Indeed. Well, well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for this inspiring conversation. Um, it was definitely more than I expected it to be. Um, thank you so much for giving your time and being here and sharing your experience. Um, I'm going to put um, links to the study and also to ISPU. ISPU is a huge Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. I didn't talk about it that much, uh, but it's a really amazing organization. Um, and there's so many great people that are involved. Dahlia Mogahid, um, she was actually on the uh, the Daily Show. I don't know if you saw that episode. Nope, She's done an amazing TED Talk. Yep. Speaking of dis- dissemination, there's uh, many people in our community that, um, and I mean, uh, uh, nationally and even now internationally. So I'll put a link to that website, to ISPU.org, and also maybe to the study. I don't know if it's uh, quite published yet, but the when report, it is. The report will be out later this month. Okay, okay. great. Report, so. Okay, Very awesome. soon. Fantastic. You'll have my email after this conversation. I'm going to want it that. Mm-hmm. Want yes. It that. I knew that you were, I was. You know I'm going to need it. <laughs> connect you with her husband, especially. Absolutely. With well, both work. of you, both of you. Yes, for sure. they're both amazing. And then Zainab, thank you for being here too. For and I hope me. that this is your next step because no, I've been trying to recruit her as to be one of my guests too. And she was well, you like, hesitant. You exactly. Come on. You're definitely going to be on my show. I'll so be you, back. Can't, you can't be on my show and not on your friend's show. Yeah, I'll so be back. Be cool. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, Calvin. No, no problem. And everyone, please check out our Facebook page. Um, subscribe to the, our podcast. Um, through the app. Um, I think we're on SoundCloud and um, you can access it through the website also. Subscribe, share, leave a review um, and come back and join us for future conversations here on Unsung Heroes. Oh.